Welcome to the Politics of Health. Each week, we'll talk about how healthcare in the United States affects politics and how politics affects healthcare. We'll go over major policies related to healthcare as well as recent news events. I'm Greg Wellman, and I'll be your guide through the labyrinth. Welcome to the Politics of Health. Health in the United States. Today's topic, we're going to talk about COVID-19 or the coronavirus. As I think everyone is aware, um, coronavirus or COVID-19 is a virus that is currently spreading worldwide. As of uh, this cast, um, the Johns Hopkins site is listing over 100,000 confirmed cases with uh, 346 confirmed cases in the United States. At the outset, I think what I want to say about this is, first of all, uh, many people are using the Johns Hopkins site as a data source, uh, including many people in journalism and broadcasting, politicians, etc. And so what this site is attempting to do is, is basically collect and post data related to confirmed cases that they have available to them through testing that's being done worldwide and being reported. So it is correct to say that these are the number of confirmed cases that the Johns Hopkins site has, um, but it's likely that the actual number of infections worldwide is larger. So sometimes I'll, I'll see a an article written or I'll hear someone on television say that, well, this is the number of people that are infected with the coronavirus. And there really is no way to know the number of people that are actually infected. These are the number of people that have been tested, uh, have a confirmation, and then report that through systems that the Johns Hopkins uh, system can pick up and report. So that being said, uh, let's go in and talk a little bit about the coronavirus. What is it? And where are we at and where are we headed? And what are things that people can do? Coronavirus is really a family of viruses that can cause illnesses in animals and in humans. It is a different family of virus from the influenza virus, but the way that it presents in humans clinically is similar to the presentation symptomatically of influenza. So the challenge for healthcare professionals that are uh, working with patients is trying to make the distinction between influenza and COVID-19 or coronavirus. The only way practicably to make that distinction uh, is through history information, maybe some nuances about the disease that may emerge, but for the most part through some type of testing. Testing in the United States uh, has been problematic uh, and from the the sense that there's been limits um, on the number of test kits that have been able to be deployed to date so far. There appear to be some moves that have happened with uh, certain states as well as the federal government and CDC to make additional testing kits available worldwide as well as um, 
nationally. And the results of that um, will, re will remain to be seen as to whether or not we begin to do more testing and whether that actually uh, spikes in cases that we're going to see in upcoming weeks are the, res are the result of both spread of the disease but also more widespread testing to be able to identify it. So what has happened to kind of create the coronavirus or, or create uh, COVID-19? And to understand that, we need to understand that viruses such as influenza and coronavirus are constantly traveling and mutating. They, that travel and mutation tends to happen in animals, so birds, um, swine or pigs, bats, etc., carry these different viruses. These viruses have the capacity to change on an ongoing basis or mutate. Um, some people in the area of virology um, think that there is random mutation, that they're constantly random, randomly mutating and changing, and others um, advocate that they actually are programmed genetically to change or mutate. Which it is uh, appears to be debated, but nonetheless, they're constantly changing, and they're also constantly interchanging between different viruses in a family or different strains of a virus in a family. They're interchanging characteristics. So the progression of viruses like influenza and um, coronavirus goes something like this. They start out in, in the animal and in animals, um, but, they, but the characteristics of the virus are not such that they can transmit to humans. So they're exchanged between different animals, uh, birds, for example, different, different types of birds, different species of birds, migratory patterns around the world are constantly exposing birds to different strains of let's say an influenza virus and then and then those are changing and mutating then what happens is we see a jump from animal to human so typically this will manifest itself as a localized outbreak of an influenza virus let's say in a community of people who are who are actively in contact on a daily basis um, with those birds and we've seen those happen worldwide, um, where there will be a community outbreak um, of something like an H7N9 strain of an influenza, where the virus is jumping from bird to human and infecting human, but not necessarily jumping human to human. And uh, organizations like the CDC and the World Health Organization are constantly monitoring those types of things, those types of viruses. You can go to the Center for Disease Control's website, look for um, search on highly pathogenic influenza, and you can see reference uh, over the years to different types of strains of influenza that are being monitored worldwide that may have jumped from animal to human, but are not jumping in a sustained way from human to human. So, so in the case of the coronavirus, what happened is that there was um, a, a coronavirus that was traveling in animals. 
um, exactly which animals um, has been subject to some speculation, which I'm not going to go into at this point in time. Uh, but it appears that in Wuhan, China, that there was an animal meat market with a high population, of course, of these different types of animals, both alive and dead. And a jump occurred of a coronavirus, which is different from, from an influenza virus. But I'm going to talk about those transmissions in terms of both of them, because with respect to coronavirus and influenza virus, the same principle applies, that they circulate and mutate in animals. A strain emerges with a mutation that can jump to humans, so animal to human, but not necessarily sustain human to human transmission. And then a strain develops or mutates that can jump from animal to human with human to human transmission. And so uh, the World Health Organization has a classification system for this. So, so phase one classification system is that um, that it is um, circulating in animals um, and we don't yet see it causing infections in humans and then we see phase two where there's a circulating animal influenza virus but it is known to be able to make the jump to humans so then in phase three, we have uh, an animal-to-human influenza virus that is able to cause a small cluster of infections and in human illness. However, there is low evidence that there is jump from amongst humans or human-to-human -human transmission. And then in the case of this coronavirus, it has gone to phase four where there's verified human-to-human -human transmission with the ability to cause community-level outbreaks, which indicates the risk that a pandemic can occur. Now, when WHO sees um, sustained outbreaks in different regions of the world, then they can make a classification of pandemic or really moving into uh, phase five and phase, phase six where we're seeing transmission to different communities with sustained transmission within those communities. So coronavirus or COVID-19 represents a virus that uh, has sustained transmission in humans has moved uh, geographically around the world and has established sustained community outbreaks uh, in different regions of the world. And that's the, the current status. So uh, it's important to understand uh, really how that process works because um, at any given point in time, we have many different types of viruses, influenza, coronavirus, um, that are that are circulating in animals and making these jumps. And when it makes this jump and becomes a sustained community infection that's being transmitted around the world, then it becomes important to move uh, in a public health 
from a public health standpoint to try to establish containment procedures around that specific virus. So the next question becomes, how dangerous is the coronavirus or novel coronavirus or COVID-19? There's a, there's a lot of unfolding information on this. Uh, and the, the problem with pinning down the death rate that's associated with COVID-19 is knowing really sort of what the denominator is. There's emerging evidence from different sources about the number of people that have died from the coronavirus or COVID-19. The problem is knowing how many people are infected to determine what that percentage is. And, and therein lies the problem of making those types of estimates. A couple things that are worth noting about uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus and, and looking at the data, um, as you, we really try to assemble evidence to say, you know, how pathogenic is, is this um, and how deadly is it, uh, are really based on really how easily we can pick up symptomology. So looking at data that's coming out of the West Coast, out of California and the state of Washington, there are, there are what would be considered pretty good uh, extrapolations or estimates that there, have, there has been circulation of the virus for some time and that there's probably a percentage of people who had it um, and, were, and thought it was uh, basically a cold or a low-level infection with the flu, never even contacted um, a healthcare professional about it because oftentimes we can manage those, those things symptomatically ourselves. And then um, as a result, um, then they're able to transmit the virus to other individuals who are at higher risk uh, of death associated with it. So that's why you hear them say that they have uh, individuals who have tested positive for the coronavirus and have become very ill from it or died from it who had no previous uh, travel history significant with travel to countries uh, where the outbreak is already underway or contact with other COVID-19 individuals. So um, given that likelihood, then um, the percentage uh, is going to be difficult to pin down because we don't know what the denominator is exactly. So you're hearing, you know, estimates that are probably... Um, I would say, you know, collating all the different things that I've heard, somewhere around 1% of individuals um, who, um, who would die from COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And, and that exact percentage is going to change over a very long period of time. When, when we look at a comparable uh, situation with the H1N1 influenza and the data that kind of is emerged on that. There are also different estimates about, well, how many people died from H1N1 influenza? Because I hear the comment being made uh, by the public and, and by broadcasters and politicians and by health professionals who will say that, well, you know, we don't need to be as afraid of COVID-19 as we are of the flu because more people have died from the flu than have died from COVID-19. 
And the problem with that statement is that many, 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 many more people have been infected with H1N1 worldwide. You know, millions of individuals have been infected with H1N1. So uh, given the death rate of H1N1, uh, of course, there would be, by a raw count, more individuals who have died um, from H1N1 than have died from COVID-19 so far. The relevant question is, uh, is COVID-19 more deadly from a case-by-case basis from the standpoint of the percentage of people uh, who could die from COVID-19 as compared to the percentage of people who could die for H1N1. Estimates um, on H1N1 death rate are also varied. So, you know, there are uh, estimates that uh, that are between 0.01% and 0.1% for H1N1. And there are estimates now for COVID-19 that are, be- that are between 1% and 3% based on confirmed cases. So if we took the lowest possible, or I'm sorry, if we took the lowest estimate of COVID-19 at around 1% and we took um, an estimate of H1N1 at 0.1%, then that would make COVID-19's death rate approximately 10 times greater than H1N1. And so that's what I'm hearing some people that are inside epidemiology kind of saying about COVID-19, that it, that um, the death rate could be approximately 10 times that of H1N1. Nailing down the statistic, um, I think at this point, uh, is not necessarily uh, extremely relevant. It's relevant. It is relevant from a healthcare preparation standpoint, which would say that healthcare organizations in the United States, as the virus unfolds in the U.S., need to sort of make estimates that they're going to have to scale up, that they may need to scale up on an order of about 10 times the scale of um, H1N1. And from an emergency preparedness standpoint, um, the proper course of action is, isn't to get involved in the debate of, of how extensively will it expand uh, as much as it is to make the assumption that it will expand in that particular community and prepare accordingly. So in emergency preparedness, we don't spend a lot of time debating like if this is going to happen or could it happen or not happen, we make the assumption that it has happened and what would we need to manage it. So coming from, you know, I come from background in healthcare, having done emergency preparedness um, in in the central Ohio, central Ohio area, um, you know, my experience with emergency preparedness has always been that standpoint. Assume that it happens, prepare accordingly, and then the best emergency preparedness plan is one that's complete and that you don't have to execute. So um, I think it is best for the public and healthcare to assume that um, COVID-19 is more dangerous than H1N1 and that we should all prepare accordingly um, 
from that standpoint and and not in general get locked in too much into debating percentages uh, because if we look at the reaction worldwide from public health officials and we look at the data that is emerging right now then then that's the conclusion that it supports that we that we need to consider COVID-19 to be a virus that is that is in general more dangerous than H1N1 and therefore we need to go about um, planning and executing policies um, and actions that are consistent with that assumption. Since this uh, podcast is focused on the politics of health, um, not, I'm not going to attempt to try to approach COVID-19 from a clinical standpoint per se, it, uh, but rather to discuss uh, what are the public health actions and state and local actions that will happen in uh, in reaction to and in planning for uh, and trying to mitigate or reduce the impact uh, of this virus as it spreads. So containment strategies that are associated with pathogenic um, viruses that or bacteria that are that are transmitting in a particular um, in a particular region or community uh, are include a number of things first of all something called social uh, targeting which would be to try to go in uh, from the standpoint of managing individuals who are clinically ill and attempt to uh, contain and treat those individuals within that particular geography. So it could be providing, um, in this case, this is a, a virus, providing prophylactic um, antivirals or um, not just prophylactic antivirals, but antivirals um, that are known to treat the condition for those that are infected and then providing prophylactic uh, or pretreatment for individuals who would be exposed to those. So the issue with something like coronavirus is what types of antivirals are effective against it. And there are a number of tests that are being run worldwide on different types of antivirals to see how effective they are. So for example, if there was an outbreak that occurred in a particular community and then those individuals were going to the local hospital, then if we used a, a social targeting containment strategy at the hospital, it would be if there was a known effective antiviral for that, then healthcare workers would be offered the opportunity to have access to that for the purposes of protecting themselves since healthcare workers are going to be on the front lines of caring for those individuals and it is critically important that healthcare practitioners be made a priority in terms of protecting them because we need those individuals um, to provide that care and and if a community of healthcare professionals becomes ill then there then there isn't the ability for those uh, professionals to be available to manage the sick.
as more information is available on antivirals, then um, then there is the ability to deploy some of those things from social targeting from a social targeting standpoint. The United States maintains something called the Strategic National Stockpile, which we really have not heard much of a discussion of at this point in time. Uh, in the COVID nineteen um, in COVID nineteen spread, the Strategic National Stockpile is um, basically warehoused um, therapies that exist for different types of uh, threats biological threats or uh, physical threats that can exist on U.S. soil. I'll come back to that. Now, when looking at social targeting and geographic targeting, um, it's possible to use those procedures I just talked about where we, if we had an effective antiviral to deploy it to a particular um, contained area like a hospital. Um, as well as geographically. I mean, it would be possible if there was a, you know, um, a specific uh, hot zone of, of um, viral activity that people in that region uh, or in that locale could also have access to antivirals for the purposes of trying to keep it contained and keep it tamped down. So far, um, I've not heard of that happening in areas on the west coast or the east coast so far of the of the use of geographic um, targeting using prophylactic treatment and that's probably largely at this point because it's unclear what would work you know we have more data on antivirals effectiveness in influenza than we have in coronavirus because coronaviruses that are this pathogenic are are typically less common than uh, influenza. The next strata, containment strategies uh, that exist for public health agencies or uh, local health authorities or federal health authorities for that matter to implement. And those are the things that we're beginning to see discussion of. The first is uh, social distancing, which is the process of basically uh, keeping people away from each other. The means of transmission of coronavirus appears to be very similar to the means of transmission of influenza. And so it's transferred either by droplets in the air. So if someone near you sneezes, you see an aerosolization of um, basically their body fluids into the air. And when you breathe those droplets in or they come into contact with your eyes or um, your nose or your mouth, then basically that provides uh, the portal of entry for the virus for the next human. The second mechanism of contact uh, of contracting a coronavirus, and it, it took a while for health agencies to uh, admit that this secondary means uh, could occur, and that was, and that is that uh, if someone has it um, and sneezes, not only does it aerosolize, but the droplets go onto surfaces um, that people can pick up through touch, or an individual who has uh, the coronavirus touches um, 
their face um, or sneezes into their hands, touches uh, doorknobs, desks, chairs, those things around them, and then other people come by, uh, come into contact with those surfaces, touch it with their hands, and then um, touch their face, and then the portal of entry is made available for the coronavirus as well. So that's why you hear people saying, wash your hands routinely, disinfect surfaces as well. Uh, if you have uh, symptoms of cold or flu, then um, sneeze into a Kleenex or something of that nature as well, rather um, than just sneezing out in the open where you can have aerosolization, which can pass to the next person. The reason that it took a while for public health agencies uh, and health professionals to broaden the mechanism by which this transferred is because when a previous coronavirus, SARS, uh, had an outbreak in China, their um, transmission really needed much more close, close personal contact to occur. And so for that reason, uh, they made that assumption at the beginning of coronavirus, but then they broadened it to say that the transmission of coronavirus would be very similar to the transmission of uh, influenza or the flu. The containment strategy of social distancing is what we're seeing being implemented in uh, many different uh, communities where we're starting to see the outbreak occur. And so the individuals who suspect they, they may have an infection are being asked to stay home, not go to work, uh, children not to go to school. Uh, and what that does is it provides isolation of those individuals and lack of contact um, with other individuals and surfaces that other individuals will be in contact with that could transmit it as well. In addition to that, um, we're beginning to see the cancellation of public events uh, occurring where people would congregate and therefore individuals who might be carrying the infection would have the opportunity to transmit it to other individuals. So um, a number of different events, concerts, uh, the big uh, music uh, film festival South by Southwest um, have been canceled. Uh, there will probably be a lot of questions as to whether or not um, the Olympics this summer, at the Summer Olympics, uh, whether those will be held as well. So those are all processes uh, that are done that are going to uh, sort of deploy social distancing by, by local authorities. Um, some event planners are canceling on their own. It's possible that we're going to get to the point where um, local health authorities or local agencies are going to make those decisions for us as the public. So, for example, schools. Right now, if there is a significant snow event, for example, then a school will typically make the call or a school district will make the call themselves to close schools. Right now, if there is a, maybe an influenza outbreak at a school, a school may make the decision to uh, close for a few days for cleaning procedures, etc. With um, concerns over COVID-19, we could see lar you know, local authorities uh, or governors or mayors um, or public health authorities make those calls uh, 
independent of the opinion of the school. So it could be possible that a governor could say that, you know, city schools in a particular area are closed for two weeks. So um, that's why you're starting to hear a lot of public health officials tell uh, schools, for example, to have uh, procedures in place uh, if their school was to be closed. Uh, same thing for universities, have procedures to offer, class, to offer classes online, etc. In the event that um, the decision is either made by the school to close for a period of time, and we're, we've seen a large university on the West Coast um, close and basically only continue online courses. So those are all, those are all uh, actions that would be taken under this category of uh, social distancing. The next phase that um, may also be tested in the United States is uh, quarantine zoning. And that is basically confining individuals to geographic regions, regions and not allowing them to leave. We've seen this done. Um, we've seen this done on the national stage uh, in China and some other uh, places in other countries where they have basically told individuals that they may not leave a city or may not leave a geographic area. And um, I'm not aware in uh, my lifetime or in recent history where uh, that has happened in the United States. Uh, so uh, and so that could be tested. Um, we will have to wait and see, but it is a public health strategy uh, to contain people into quarantine zones and basically prevent them from leaving. That has a lot of implications politically in the United States, and I suspect that there would have to reach a pretty high threshold um, for a governor or for the president to make those types of decisions, but it's nonetheless a strategy that can be done to contain the spread. Uh, right now, you know, numbers are still um, moving up in the United States, and so uh, it will it will be uh, that that type of strategy will will be challenged in the future if those numbers continue to increase or explode in a particular geographic region. Which containment strategies you use uh, are dependent to some extent on the nature of, of, of how the virus sort of reproduces from human to human. I mean, we know how a virus reproduces, but the question becomes how many individuals could one infected individual uh, cause? And so there's a number that you hear being kicked around called uh, the reproduction factor or the R naught of the virus and um, the R value or the R naught value basically uh, let's say that the R naught is two. Then what that means is for every person who is infected based on the epidemiologic spread, it appears that each person who's infected can infect on average two other individuals. And, and it's basically a mathematical number. It, I mean, one individual who is infected can infect many more people depending upon how they behave and what they do. So the R naught becomes sort of a statistical number. There have been a lot of estimates of what the R naught is for the 
uh, COVID-19 virus, and I've been trying to watch those over the last few weeks, and I've seen things anywhere from, you know, 1.5, which would be one and a half individuals for each person infected, to greater than three or four um, individuals um, that are infected for every individual who's infected. And again, it's a statistical number, and it's basically saying how contagious is is the virus. Um, there have been a number of, of computational biologists who've tried to do, to do mathematical predictions of the spread of um, different types of pathogens worldwide. And um, there were some articles published um, in uh, the early in the late 2000s, and there are some that are coming out now trying to predict mathematical models. And based on the mathematical models and how contagious something is and how it's spreading, then that can dictate the types of strategies that you should use. So based on some of those mathematic computational models, um, the recommendation is, is that anything that sort of approaches an R naught of two would be um, use everything, you know, use everything that you have available from, you know, geographic targeting to social targeting and distancing to quarantining, etc. And so that's a little bit uh, of, of or a lot of why we might be hearing uh, the medical director of the World Health Organization saying, you know, countries have to pull out all the stops. And that means that um, the subtext of that is that countries need to enact any and all methods that they have available to them to try to contain the spread and movement of the virus into additional communities. There, there's some mathematical data to support the fact that um, these strategies can work to mitigate the movement of the virus. And the reality, you know, having been in healthcare for a long time and 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 seeing different types of epidemics and pandemics, you know, um, break out, and also looked at different types of disease, looking at different types of diseases over my lifetime, like measles and polio and um, smallpox, etc., which you know were vaccinations that I received as a child uh, in the United States. Um, that that looking. Uh, you know, and understanding all those different strategies, uh, that really that this is going to be about mitigating spread of this virus until the point in time we get to a vaccine. If there were a vaccine that was available for this, then going all the way back to um, one of the first strategies, you know, that would exist um, for a viral outbreak called social targeting. Would be to would be to get the vaccine into the hot zones, so to speak, and make sure that in areas where there's an outbreak, that people were vaccinated. And I'm not going to try to get into the whole vaccine, vax, anti-vax movement in this podcast. But the reality of the situation is, is that given what we know about the virus so far, given its pathogenicity. Um, given its potential mortality, and given the nature in which it were to be spread, 
if a vaccine, let's say, were available tomorrow on it, then one of the strategies to contain it that the government would face locally and federally would be mandatory vaccination. Basically, it would be to say we're moving into the, a zone like we're seeing in the state of Washington where things are spreading rapidly, and, and we're going to deploy vaccination as a means to contain it in that region so it can't move out. Because if we look at the progression of this or any virus, you know, what will happen in a specific region is it will begin to spread, as it has done in provinces in China. People will become exposed to it. People will develop immunity to it. And then once you get to a certain threshold of people who have been exposed and are immune to it, then the ability for the virus to move in that particular region is limited by what we call herd immunity because there's enough people that are immune to it that, that basically doesn't have the ability to transmit to the lesser number of people who haven't been exposed to it because it can't move past an individual. A person who has immunity to it or a vaccination to it becomes a shield to the other individuals who do not have the immunity to it. And so... At some point in, let's say, China, provinces of China have that exposure, then basically we're going to start to see reductions in the increase in the number of people who are infected because there's enough herd immunity in that lo locality to prevent continued transmission to the people that haven't been exposed to it. And so they'll just be isolated um, occurrences of it. And then we move you know, kind of from the local epidemic to what we call endemic stage where it becomes a background virus that just has to be managed as smaller numbers of people uh, get exposed to it because it still has some latent, um, it's still some latency in people that are in that region who are passing it around. So um, the ability uh, where this becomes uh, a political issue in the politics of health will be what authority do individuals have to be able to enact or action restrictions like um, movement of people in the United States or um, mandatory quarantine or mandatory vaccination. Uh, I'm not going to go into, into great depth on the legalities of those things because I'm not an attorney, um, but having studied it a bit in health law, uh, what people should understand is that, first of all, um, the largest percentage of that power rests with your state. So under the Constitution, the states are, are granted um, greater police, great police power, and that was the Constitutional's a writer's attempt to try to really empower states to to really enact um, police action as opposed to the federal government being a large federal police force. So when we look at rules that relate to quarantine, um, things like quarantine, then we first look to state law. So the state that I am in, I've reviewed those laws, and in the state that I am in, the state health authorities have very, very broad powers. They have the ability to um, enact law. They have the ability to change law on the fly. And they have the ability to um, enact uh, policies that 
that would, you know, likely be able to be able to enforce quarantine or mandatory vaccinations, etc. Whether they would do it would be up to the public health authorities. And in the state that I'm in, uh, there is a check and balance uh, in that um, if they were to go to an individual or individuals and require, um, let's say, a vaccination, then the check and balance is, is that they have to be able to either do in advance or, or with some reasonable delay only, um, go, to, go to a judge and, and have that reviewed. You know, so, so the public health authority in the state that I'm in has, you know, pretty broad authority to do that. And then, um, and then the check and balances uh, judges. The federal government uh, also has some authority as well um, to enact uh, some procedures uh, to the extent that the threat appears to be broad enough um, to sort of cross over state lines, which obviously uh, COVID-19 does and has proven that it can. There are some um, things that they have to go through to enact that. Um, that they're, you know, and so I'm sure that those authorities um, are in the process of reviewing those, those types of uh, actions that they could take or not take uh, and what legal triggers you know, kind of, or legal levers would have to be pulled to be able to do those things going forward. And only time will tell as, as we see spread of COVID-19 to determine, you know, how far into the armamentarian of, con- of containment strategies, you know, will um, agencies go. So where does that leave that us as individuals? So, um, Going forward, it becomes important to maintain an understanding of uh, what the virus is, how it's moving in your community, um, monitor public health organizations in your state um, to, to, to understand what actions they're taking. Because as things unfold in, let's say, a state like Washington, because the powers lie first with the state, then the state authority is typically going to take the lead at the beginning and then call upon the federal government for assistance when um, help is needed or the government might step in, you know, at some point in time as it determines that crossing over state lines, there's a need to um, take additional action. So, you know, know your state authorities, spend some time looking up the rules and remember to take cues. A lot of us are focused on the things we're seeing out of Washington um, and less focused on the state. And, and, and um, I have been sort of turning more of my attention to really what's happening in the state now uh, because that's really where the initial triggers and levers are going to be pulled. On an individual level, it just becomes a matter of emergency preparedness. So... Um, there is just a host of, um, you know, an hour doesn't go by where there's another news outlet saying do this and don't do that. And um, recently when I've, you know, when I've gone to the local Costco or the local Sam's Club, I can, you know, look around, the, you know, uh, at the things that people are buying and tell people that are just there picking things up and people who are there preparing just by the nature of what's in their basket or what's on their large cart. 
Um, I think a, a couple things to remember is um, is understanding the risk groups that are associated with this. So let me just spend a moment on the data that you know that I've seen about uh, really who are the people that are at risk. First of all, regular influenza, your your standard run of the mill influenza virus, tends to be more dangerous in individuals over the age of sixty and less dangerous in people under the age of sixty. That's your standard influenza virus. H one N one, which is um, a predominant strain of influenza that has been circulating now for years uh, nationally and locally, actually flipped that scale. Some recent data that came out for the Center of Disease Control looking at you know millions of individuals infected with H1N1, they basically concluded that roughly 70% of the people that were severely adversely affected from H1N1 were under the age of 60. And individuals that I know in healthcare have kind of confirmed this. The current circulating influenza is dangerous for, for younger people. COVID-19, the data on COVID-19 coronavirus appears to flip back to having a higher percentage of danger in people over the age of 60. Now, it doesn't mean that people under the age of 60 are going to be you know, completely fine more data is emerging and um, everyone needs to you know take precautions but based on the data right now people over the age of 60 need to take more and people over the age of 60 who have other health conditions such as heart disease or diabetes or respiratory problems need to take very very high levels of precaution and we're seeing federal agencies already putting this information out basically telling people over the age of 60 with with comorbidities you know other health diseases to basically begin to isolate themselves so on the ground in preparation you know what are the things that we all need to do um, in preparation and again the purpose of this podcast isn't to try to debate the extent to which um, COVID-19 is going to spread in the United States. There have been many people all the way up to the top who've made the statement that Americans are at low risk. As a health professional and, um, and also me listening, you know, what other health professionals have said, I, in general, do not hear health professionals make that statement. Um, I hear politicians make it, and I hear public agencies make it, but I don't hear boots on the ground health professionals say it. And here's the reason why. The coronavirus doesn't care where you come from. If you're exposed to it in China, if you're exposed to it in Australia, if you're exposed to it in the United States, your risk from it is the same. Doesn't matter. It it's a matter of exposure. Geographic mitigation that we're doing right now is basically intended. You know, the goal the goal of public health agencies is to try to mitigate the spread until we get the vaccine. 
period. That's, that's the goal. You know, keep the spread as contained as possible until we get to a point where we have a vaccine. And then when the vaccine is available, we will see if things are continue to progress as they right, are right now and we see a vaccine available, there will be maximum deployment of that vaccine. So, so preparing, so when, when I say how to prepare in emergency preparedness, you know, I, I, I come from that background of emergency preparedness. In emergency preparedness, we don't debate probability. We get, we, we get prepared. So, you know, in, in my previous uh, position, my job was to help prepare the hospital for every contingency that may hit the hospital and not to debate whether one was more likely or one was less likely. We considered them all equally likely. So that's the perspective that I am taking in the next few minutes in terms of preparation. Um, so if you make the assumption that it will come into your community, how would you prepare? And what we are seeing so far in other communities when it comes in, there is a need to increase social distancing and isolation until the virus runs its course and then herd immunity establishes itself. So what we're, or it is contained. It's possible it could be contained in the community. And then, um, and so the process that an individual that we're seeing go on around the world is they're closing schools, they're clo they might close them all, shut down public events, um, and they tell people basically um, isolate yourselves. Do not, do not go into public. Do not go into public places. Um, church services could close. And so it becomes a period of time that people would need to go through where they would be um, sort of distanced from other people not wanting to go to the shopping center so it would make sense then that the preparation that individuals need to make is make sure that you have the things that you need in your home to eat to take care of yourself uh, to take care of yourself if you're sick for a period of time of you know two weeks three weeks four weeks um, while that community action is underway so that's the reason we see people going to the Costco or going to the Sam's Club and buying bottled water, buying extra foodstuffs, buying extra um, containers of, you know, soups and, and things of that nature, buying Tylenol, buying, uh, you know, ibuprofen, those types of medical supplies. If people, if someone in the house became ill with a cold or flu-like symptoms, being able to take care of them and not have to go to the pharmacy where other individuals may be going as well who have been exposed and could expose other people. So preparation, you're hearing people say, you know, one of the best ways to prepare is make sure you have things that you need and that you could, you could, you could kind of stay inside your home or your apartment for an extended period of time um, while containment strategies are going on around you. Um, the other um the other strategies that people are using um, that we're also seeing action taken on um, have to do with things like, you know, having disinfectants, Clorox wipes, um, 
hand sanitizers, hand washing procedures, soaps, and things of that nature so that people are able to practice good hygiene to mitigate transmission from person to person or reduce the risk that you're going to expose yourself to something that's on a surface, etc. So, you know, those um, those things are also, you know, when I when I go to the Sam's Club or I go to Costco or I go to the grocery store, you know, those are the things I see in people's carts. Those are the things that I see emptying off the shelves, you know, Clorox wipes, um, hand sanitizers, Purell's, those types of things. Let me spend a minute talking about face masks um, because uh, it just seems like face masks, face masks have become this lightning rod issue for a lot of people. Um, first, let me say that uh, it is critically important that we have personal protective equipment available to healthcare professionals who are going to be on the front lines of taking care of the sick. Those individuals coming from a healthcare, you know, hospital setting, myself, um, those individuals. Um, are on the front lines. They're taking care of the sick and the injured. And our ability to maintain our health is in their hands. And so we need to ensure that healthcare professionals have the gear that they need to protect themselves um, because they're the ones that, um, that, are, that are doing the frontline work. So um, whatever the government needs to do to ensure that they have face masks and personal protective equipment needs to be done, okay? Um, there are certainly strategies, you know, that the government has at its disposal to try to ramp up manufacture of those as well as sequestering um, those types of things and making them available to healthcare professionals. So governments have the ability to help make those things happen, and they need to help make those things happen. And in fact, should have already planned for those things to happen. There's something called the Strategic National Stockpiles I referred to earlier. And the Strategic National Stockpile is basically exactly what it sounds like. Um, the government has, you know, large caches of medical supplies that are available to drop into zones where they are needed. We haven't heard a lot of talk about the Strategic National Stockpile, and that's mainly because novel coronavirus um, is just that don't know what you know don't know what medical um, treatments are going to work on it but um, there's no reason to believe that strategic national stockpile doesn't have antivirals in it it's just the question becomes are the antivirals that could be deployed and become effective um, there is no vaccine for it so that the strategic national stockpile does have vaccines in it, but there isn't a way to have a vaccine for something that is novel or new. So there isn't somewhere a warehouse full of, you know, coronavirus vaccine because it's a new virus and it wouldn't able to have been anticipated. So um, what they have in terms of medical masks and personal protective gear, I do not know, uh, but it's likely there is some there. So, you know, the government needs to do everything in its power to make sure that those are available. Okay, so that being said, are face masks effective for the public? The problem 
is that I hear a lot of health professionals saying that there is no evidence that face masks work. And so I hear, I hear public health agencies, I hear different health professionals, including physicians and nurses, saying, like, stop buying masks. They don't work for you. We need them for us. And the truth is, 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 that it is, is that it is not true that there is no evidence. There is evidence, okay? Um, and I reviewed the medical evidence. So there, there is some medical evidence, however conflicting, that face masks work for health professionals and they work for the public. So there are a number of published systematic reviews, which I won't go into detail in the podcast. Um, if you go to the Politics of Health site, I have uh, gone through and detailed that information. So if you want to dig into it, go to the website, www.thepoliticsofhealth, and there's posting on face masks uh, that goes through that detail. There is data that um, supports it is conflicting. Nonetheless, it supports the idea that uh, people in the community who use face masks in conjunction with good hand hygiene have less of a transmission potential for influenza, okay, for influenza. And so that's likely the motivation that some people are having to say, well, there's no evidence in coronavirus, well, or in this coronavirus, and that's true. Because by the time that that evidence is available, it will be well too late in terms of the spread of the virus. So we have to make extrapolations from influenza. Public, multiple public health agencies have said that coronavirus transmits in a similar way to influenza, droplets, and contact. Therefore, evidence that exists in influenza is valid in coronavirus. And evidence in influenza in the community setting is conflicting. There's some studies that say it don't work. Some studies that say it does. But individuals who have combined those studies together to what we call meta-analysis have said that um, in the community setting, individuals who combine face masks with good hand hygiene are at lesser risk of influenza transmission. Now, the reality is, is um, unless you unless you have some at this point, it's going to be very difficult to get them. And whether and it's not appropriate, you know, for people to be charging what they're charging for them. Um, that being said, if an individual has access to um, a face mask, N95 face mask, surgical face mask for some region reason, then my recommendation is know how to use them properly. Um, there are numerous uh, videos that you can walk on, watch online as to how to properly put it on and take it off because um, if, you, if you don't use it properly, then you're not going to really get any benefit from it. So go online, look at the proper use of uh, how to properly put it on, how to properly hygiene yourself on the front end and the back end of its use, how to take it off and how to dispose of it. Um, otherwise, you're not adding any benefit. Um, it's not a complicated process. You know, I hear some health professionals say, well, you know, we're highly trained to do that, and the public doesn't understand how to do it. I've gone through the training. I've used them myself, 
it's not a highly complicated process. So if you go online, you can see how to use it. Again, I want to say on the back end of my comment on face masks that it is more that it is important that priority be given to people who are in healthcare because they need that protection. But it's up to governments to make that determination, okay, uh, and to find ways to make that happen because they have processes and procedures at their disposal to make that ha to help to make that happen. So um, we've covered a little bit about um, what the COVID-19 virus is. We've covered a little bit about um, processes and procedures that exist for uh, localities to try to mitigate spread. Um, we've talked a little bit about personal preparation um, and preparedness related to it. And it is important um, for anyone who's listening to this podcast to continue to monitor the situation uh, locally. There are a number of sources of information that are available. On You can watch things like the CDC website. You can look at things like the World Health Organization website. Uh, health professionals, there's data on the, uh, the Lancet, one of the medical journals, uh, is making things available on it, and there's uh, information being deployed as well. Uh, so it's important to maintain an understanding. It's important not to panic. Um, and it's important to be personally prepared uh, in the eventuality that um, it does arrive in your community so that you have the ability to participate in things like social distancing, self-quarantine, self-isolation. I think the last thing that I would say in terms of personal preparation is that um, Hospitals have procedures that exist within their organizations to, to handle these types of events. Hospitals are really well prepared for this. They have been preparing for years for uh, biologics in some way, shape, or form. So I know people in healthcare organizations and hospitals, um, I've been talking with them for years and been watching them for years they they are prepared for this and they can scale up you know to to a great degree to be able to care for um, sick individuals listen to what your local health authorities are asking you to do um, and notice i said listen to your local health authorities um, to try to avoid you know political rhetoric that is existing at, you know, higher levels in the organization. When I've watched local state briefings on these and local agency briefings on them, um, they're really much more devoid of a lot of the uh, noise that is going on at the national level in either direction. So take your cues from your local organizations. Go to the websites of your local hospitals, listen to the things that they're telling you, read the things that they're deploying. And then when local agencies ask you to do something, please try to cooperate with them. They are well-trained on this and they're skilled to give instructions. In your household, it would probably be a good idea, the people that you're living with, to, to 
identify an internal process. Like what will we do if an individual in the home becomes sick? And walk through procedures to um, internally as, you know, have a room where that person can uh, convalesce during their illness, um, separate from the other people in the house. If you have if your home has the ability to have a separate, you know, a separate bathroom available for that person, you know, then, you know, segregate off an area where, you know, they can have access to, you know, a toilet and washing and things of that nature and access to medicines and things of that nature to um, allow them to stay out of contact with other individuals in the home. So, you know, do your own internal walkthrough Um talk about what you would do if someone were to be ill um, and then um, have procedures that you're ready to kind of follow in your own home to provide for those Ill, those individuals who are ill as well. It is likely that in minor types of colds and flus that uh, clinics are likely going to say don't come and see us. So if you are ill with you know symptoms of fever, um, symptoms of cough, uh, sneezing, things of that nature. Uh, do not be afraid to call your physician's office and ask for instructions. It's likely that they will give you instructions over the phone as to what to do. There are a number of health outlets. Contact, for example, the hospital in our region that I'm in right now has implemented a process that would be available to f free, available free to all of the public in the city that I live in where they could do an where they could do an online video uh, conference with someone to review symptoms. So that's why it's important to look at your local hospital sites and see what things they're making available um, and not worry about us being dialed into all the national um, rhetoric on this. Know what's happening locally. So I know that because, you know, the hospital, hospital locally has advertised that as being available and I also know that my local physician's office I know their procedures that you know which they would use to take a call in these instances in the event where an individual becomes very very ill then you know local hospitals are available local emergency rooms local um, medical squads are available to um, to deal with those With that, we're going to close uh, today's uh, broadcast on um, the coronavirus as things begin to unfold. Uh, please watch our website. I'll continue to post uh, information there and um, do update podcasts uh, in the event that um, new information unfolds. And thank you for your time.